You're listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. Join your host, Pascal Fintoni, for what promises to be an exciting and intriguing voyage of discovery filled with advice, stories, and film marketing ideas. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on with today's episode of the Film Marketing Academy podcast. Now, every so often, Roger, there is a movie that surpasses all expectation when it comes to its achievement, but also its accolades and reputation. The King's Speech is one of those movies that have completely redefined the world of storytelling and indeed how you go about marketing a low-budget independent production. Let's remind ourselves about the King's Speech watching his trailer. My husband is, um, well, he's required to speak publicly. I have received <laughs> Perhaps he should change jobs. And what of my husband with a king? My husband has seen everyone. Insert them into your mouth. Enunciate. He hasn't seen me. I can't cure your husband, but I need total trust. What was your earliest memory? I'm not here to discuss personal matters. Well, why are you here, then? Because I bloody well stammer! Do you know any jokes? Timing isn't my strong suit. <laughs> your methods are unorthodox and controversial. No, 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 no. Up comes your royal hands. It's actually quite good fun. Yes. Oh. Art thou afeard? It's your peculiar. I take that as a compliment. War with Germany will come. And we will need a king whom we can all stand behind. He's afraid of his own shadow. The nation believes that when I... I speak, I speak for them. But I can't speak. You could do it. You needn't be governed by fear. It'd be like mad King George the Stammer. Get up, you can't sit there. Get up! Why not? It's a chair. That is... That is St. Edward's chair. People have that... carved their names Listen to me! Listen to me! Why should I waste my time listening to you? Because I have a voice! Yes, you do. Your greatest test is yet to come. What's he saying? I don't know, but he seems to be saying it rather well. Your first wartime speech. Broadcast to the nation and the world. This great time of crisis. However this turns out, I don't know how to thank you. Bertie, you're the bravest man I know. I intend to be a very good queen. To a very great king. Forget everything else and just say it to me. Wow. This brings back such memories. Now, I saw the King's Speech, Roger, very late. I actually bought the DVD when it first came out, and it was on my shelf forever, it would seem. And one day I went, I must watch this. And, and of course, like many others around the world, I was not disappointed. Do you remember seeing the King's Speech? 
I was like you. We didn't go to see it at the cinema. We got it out on Blu-ray when it was first released, bought it pretty much straight away, by which time its reputation was just global, wasn't it? And it had already um, been nominated and, and won so many awards. And, you you know, you described right at the start that it's one of those sort of low-budget films that comes around every so often that, absolutely knocks it out of the park in pretty much every respect storytelling um acting a you know the cast the atmosphere whatever it is and this is this is one of those films like the full monty and um, slumdog millionaire and billy elliot sort of low budget british films with traditionally um, recognisable British actors, but it's maybe it's something to do with that sort of the Britishness of it and the absolutely incredibly character-driven scripts combined with that incredible acting. I mean, none of these are action films that I've mentioned. They're all character pieces, aren't they? Really quite in-depth character pieces, but it's the drama of it and the passion of the actors and the believability of the situations that absolutely raises these films above so many others and that was what you get with the king's speech is just sucked in by incredible performances you're absolutely right this is probably the first time that i found myself relating to forgive me a king i mean this is a story of uh, yeah. king george the sixth who having to face two well two uh, quite extraordinary events the second world war but also for him to have to deliver a speech in which he declares that the United Kingdom will be at war against Nazi Germany. And you're absolutely right. We see his evolution. I mean, this is obviously a movie that uses the metamorphosis kind of story element, but told in a way that is so human that, um, I mean, his wife, Queen Elizabeth, um, in terms of, you know, the relationship there. But I also, you know, found myself warming to the relationship between uh, the character of Jeffrey Rush and Jennifer Ely, um, Lionel Log and Myrtle Log, and mm. also discovered, of course, an aspect of British history that didn't know anything. So you are absolutely right. It was so relatable, despite the fact that they are essentially people who are the monarchy. And of course, somebody that has come from Australia to settle in in England, and yes, to, to me it was also I was I kept thinking, yeah, I know those feelings, you know, public speaking, yeah, I know those feelings. I wanted to get it right, but what I don't know is the feeling of duty to the point at which you know Colin Firth was was mentioning it because, of course, he um, was younger, the younger you know, sibling. And, and his brother had abdicated, and he suddenly he was thrust into this idea of being first in line and first on the throne after the, the death of his father. So it was all, all those layers that was superbly mm. managed by Tom Hooper, the director, and of course his crew and cast. And you mentioned very briefly the, the choice they made around the sets, one the colors, one the costumes, that is exactly what British film production does so well. Yeah, it's always, you know, we mentioned before the full Monty, that was that was Sheffield um, post-Steel, wasn't it? And, 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 and Slumdog Millionaire had a completely different view and feel as well. But it's those details that British independent films are so well known for. I guess what impressed me the most about this is that, let, let's face it, the monarchy exists in this sort of elite stratosphere, doesn't it? 
but they managed to humanize this character of of the king and let, let let's face it a lot of people don't really know the story um and this will be them coming to it at the first time. And I think that the interplay between Colin Firth and Geoffrey Rush, and of, and of course, I always think of Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy or <laughs> um, somebody out of Love Actually. And, and I think of Geoffrey Rush as Captain Barbosa out of, out of the Pirates of the Caribbean film. And then he is Geoffrey Rush, very well-spoken Australian gentleman in an incredibly smart cut suit. And yet the interplay between him, I mean, he doesn't take any shit from the king. And that's probably a good thing because anybody, any lesser character would have probably not stood up to the king enough to actually get the king to do what he needed to do. And and it's that interplay that, you know, every scene that those two were in are instantly rewindable and, and watchable again. I think that you're right, that mentor-mentee relationship is so yeah. well executed, but also back to the side of the choice of um, framing, the choice of colours and music, the evolution of the anguish felt by mm-hmm. King George VI until eventually he delivers that speech. But what is what is very, well, he's played so well, and we must celebrate the work of the writer, clearly, and the yeah. director, is Geoffrey Rush will take on Colin Firth, the king, but he also scared about his wife. Remember the scene when his wife doesn't know that he's working for the king and the queen, and they are working in his studio, and his wife, uh, played by Jennifer Healy, Myrtle, comes back early from the shops. And, well, I can, I'm can i sure that husbands and partners around the world can relate to the look. And she <laughs> gives him the look, do you remember? And yeah. <laughs> we realised, well, yeah, Jeffrey Rush can take on the king, but we'll still be quite worried about what it, he's going to get a earful from his wife after he's gone. <laughs> and to me, that there was some... Very, very human moment, um, sometimes comedic moment, which I think sometime led the marketing team slightly astray. We're going to come talking about mm-hmm. this because, of course, you and I, as people can tell, we are praising this film. We've enjoyed it thoroughly. But its journey from completion to, to the Oscars wasn't straightforward. Uh, and you could argue that its success came much, much later. So from memory, it was produced and filmed in the early part of 2010, then it was pretty much finished in the autumn of 2010. It wasn't until spring to summer 2011, should I say, that the world really got behind the film. Yeah, and, and just just kudos again, just reinforcing that, that the, the writer, David Seidler, had actually had the same stutter problem, the same speech problem as the king did. And it was him listening to the king's broadcasts back you know in in wartime that inspired him to overcome his own stuttering problem so in a way when he was writing this screenplay yes he was writing about the king but he was also probably building in a sort of autobiographical element to it as well and i'm sure that some of the emotions and the feelings that were in the screenplay were actually the writer's own feelings as to how he felt about his own speech problem in the same way as he was telling the story of the king Uh, so yeah sorry and for me that brings back this idea of you know good fortune and fair wind you know when you make mm. it and make a film so you had that element as well 
which led to actually David Sidler winning the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay at the age of 74, mm-hmm. which is quite an achievement. But another kind of uh, alignment of the planet was that the grandson of the real Lionel Log discovered a box in the attic containing his grandfather's papers and notes yeah. when he was working with the king. And he actually donated, or Atlanta would imagine, the, the documentation to the filmmakers so they could make it even more real. And allegedly in the box was the speech with the notes and the, the, the kind of the, the advice given by Lionel to, to the king. So there are a lot of things that went you know, that were in the right place for, for this film to do well. Yeah, and let's face it, we've already said it was a low-budget film. I think overall, the production costs were around about £9 million, and yet it grossed $236 million worldwide. And then, of course, equal millions from sales of DVDs, Blu-rays, and repeats, and all of that sort of thing. And I think that because all the actors effectively took profit shares in the film, they, they all, they, a lot of them were taking home huge windfalls as a result of the absolutely amazing success of the film. But before it was successful, they had very little to, pay, to spend on marketing. And, you know, apart from the trailer and apart from the, the film posters, and there were quite a few different iterations of the posters, which we can maybe just talk a little bit about, but apart from the poster and the trailer, they really struck gold because they launched the film around about the time of a few of the um, major film festivals, and the media just absolutely fell in love with it, grabbed hold of it, and just went absolutely atmospherically happy and positive and, you know, couldn't heap enough praise on the film. And that excitement and that praise just spread around the world and beca- and that's why it became this must-see film. So it was really a word-of-mouth marketing, if then this, really, rather than any specific campaign. I think for me it's so typical of indie film production, that word mm. of mouth, you know. Sometimes the word the word viral marketing is used, but unfortunately people think of immediately social media. Mm. This was 2011, very different times anyway. But more importantly, back to your point, even if they'd had access to a website and to social media, this, this was 10 years ago, and you could not have you know, established that, that positioning and protection of the movie by just your own efforts. You had to use the power of others. And there isn't one newspaper, magazine, not one TV channel or radio station that did not mention the film in some ways. When we think about what about marketing, one thing they did really, really well, I, I suspect in agreement with the investors and the producers, they allowed everyone that were involved in the film, literally everyone, from the costume designers to the audio editor to the set, you know, everyone was able to speak about the film and were invited to speak about the film. And I will tell you, Roger, I don't think that we've seen that done in that way very often. And certainly in terms of movies we've reviewed, you and I, if you watch, for example, and can go and Google the articles, you will see different crew members and different cast members talking about the film happily. And I think, therefore, this, this expansion and this extension of the access to information by the film, including some of the um, disagreement maybe on the posters, which we're going to talk about, even revealing uh, the first choices of cast. So, for example, the the director openly spoke, you know, as part of the, the word of mouth marketing, the founder, Paul Bettany, 
was the first choice, but it was not available. And that when we're calling Firth, and all this kind of behind the scene and, and kind of the, um, the, the, the world of pre and, um, and production, I think has helped immensely as opposed to what people would do just to have maybe one, two messages that they just repeat over and over again, only delivered by a very, very small number of people. This is, a, this is such an important thing to say. I see it in big corporates all the time. You know, we are only allowed the official Twitter account. You're only allowed to say the official messages. But some of the companies that are more successful on social media are those ones that allow their staff to be ambassadors for the brand. And okay, the, there's probably some checks and balances going on in the background. But when it looks like the staff are also talking about everything and how passionate they are about working for that business, that company always stands out. And this is what happened with this film, as you say. Everybody was talking about it and nobody was being gagged. And therefore, it did feel so much more inclusive. And that's probably why it went so viral, because everybody was allowed to get involved. Uh, and I think it's only to the credit of, once again, the, the leaders of that crew and cast, because you're right, people probably worked longer hours for much lower pay than they would normally in the spirit of indie film production. And if you can't even allow the person who was in charge of maybe catering even to just be invited uh, on, on a podcast or radio show, you, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, one thing that made the, um, the headlines, I suppose you could argue, was very openly um, Tom Hopper, the, the, the director, was very, very unhappy um, with the first iteration of the poster. I mean, literally, that made the, the headline. And when you see the artwork, you can really understand why. I think one critic from a US magazine said it looked like someone would do that if they were selling you, um, essentially, a rip-off copy of, of the, the movie. So you had this very, very strange kind of um, setting of the three main characters, um, but almost making it look like a comedy. Mm. And they had mm. this god-awful strapline of... When God could not save the queen, the que sorry. When God could not save the king, the queen turned to someone who could, and Tom Hooper went absolutely ballistic, thinking this is bad. This will not do. And instead, they went for a minimalistic uh, poster, which I think will um, please you. Simplicity, where we have the close-up of Colin Firth kind of um, mouth, then we have the old-fashioned BBC um, microphone. And we have a quote from the Wall Street Journal, which I think for anyone making movies, you would want someone to say that about your film. The quote on the poster, the one that they use for the festivals mentioned by you, Roger, says as follows. A film that makes your spirit soar, a rare combination of crowd pleaser and triumphant artistry. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the when God couldn't save the king, the queen turned to someone who could. That poster genuinely does look like a comedy, doesn't it? I mean, even Helena Bonham Carter's look in that poster is almost four weddings and a funerally in its in its uh, aspect. There is another poster as well, which you've just got Jeffrey Rush and, and Colin Firth in it, and that's that's similar but more official and that has a strap line it takes leadership to confront a nation's fear it takes friendship to conquer your own now that felt to me as if it was closer to what 
was required. But ultimately, I would agree with you. I think the the one with the microphone and the and just the the person speaking into the microphone is the one that actually sums the film up best for me. And, and I think that's the the thing. So when you go around the festivals and when you want to try and get the support from the media and film goers, because of course by then we have blogs and we have podcasts and so on. That's the art whether you want. And a reminder that as often, as we said on this show, less is more. Uh, and this is just, and of course, you know, using third-party validation as is the case here. And then when the distributors take over after the many Oscar wins and BAFTAs and whatever, then the artwork, everything else changes because, of course, the the marketing machine from those big distributors take over. And I think the the one that you mentioned is probably the one that you have on the cover of a DVD or certainly one of, of that ilk. But yeah, I, I'm so pleased that we're in a position to praise word of mouth marketing but done well and with the full support of everyone involved in the movie and of course uh, media and audiences around the world yeah and then the next thing on my list now is to actually go and watch this film again <laughs> do you know i've not watched it again because literally it's so clear in my mind that i can replay the scenes you've mentioned you know uh, so so many times it's it's almost the kind of ultimate rags to riches story, but actually the person starts by being very rich, and it's the king, right? And yep. back to this idea of we can all relate because we've all been there before when we've been given a task to do, maybe sometime out of duty, and fear takes over, you know, and and the nerves takes over, and talk about imposter syndrome, and what you need, and in in this case, what what you need is is a partner. To support you, a life partner, and then also an expert that comes along with a set of techniques and, and toolkits. Because I mean, some of the um, the techniques that he learns, I'm absolutely convinced they are real. As in, you know, mm. David Sedler and many others would have uh, studied to that, not to. Because there's one thing that this film does really well is that you feel for the character, but you don't feel bad or you don't feel awkward. You know, I think that was really well played. And that's why I think it worked that the actual author had been through this whole thing himself. I think that is one of the reasons why the writing was so absolutely on point. So all of you, if you've not seen the King's speech, don't worry. You can. We've not spoiled anything. It's a bit like, forgive me uh, if I may use a completely different comparison at a different scale. It's like watching Titanic. You know the ending. But you, the story and the characters kind of you know, take you along. This is the same here. You know for a fact that the king will deliver the speech and will do a good job. Its journey from the start to beginning is just absolutely riveting. And it's just a pleasure that we've been able to speak about it with you, Roger. It's absolutely a pleasure. One of the one of the best film marketing chats we've had for a while. <laughs> Quite absolutely. So everyone, sadly, this is the end of episode 62. Thank you once again for your amazing support. Please leave comments, suggestions in the usual places. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards.
Thank you for listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. For more information about our film marketing consultancy and training services, go to filmmarketingacademy.com and book your free discovery video call. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and follow your host on social media for more updates.